Okay. So they're there. You can pick yours up in your box and uh, you can have that on hand if you need to refer to it from time to time. So we have much to pray about, so let's uh, pray for a little bit before we begin getting into God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, we are just grateful that we can come before the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And as I've said many times before, we are a needy people whether we know it or not. We have expressed many of the concerns, uh, most of them with health concerns uh, among this congregation, but Father, except for your shed blood, we would be a lost people. And we oftentimes take that for granted that we come here and we've got our ticket punched and we're ready to go to heaven and, and all is good. But you, it cost you an awful lot to put that into place. And we want to recognize that not only on Communion Sunday, but on other Sundays as well. That you're a Savior that reached down from heaven's glories to save us that were desperately in need of a Savior. So we want to thank you for that, and in addition, we want to thank you for the, the progress of Barrett Mitchell, that baby that is, was under the knife for so many hours, and we kind of marvel at what uh, people can do in their humanity even to have things work physically like they're supposed to. But God, you are the great physician. We know that your hand was upon those surgeons as they worked, because we prayed for them, and we asked that it would it would go well, and it seems to have gone quite well, and we thank you for that. And we want to extend our prayers to Monty Mayberry as he's going to be waiting for a heart, and he's got a heart pump, and he's got a road to recovery ahead of him. So we ask that you would give him healing, that he'd be able to heal up, he'd be able to function well with his heart pump, and that a heart would become available in an appropriate amount of time so that he can get back to work and doing the things that he is. He's a busy guy and he's got a lot of things going. So we ask that you would restore him whole, as well with Money Mayberry as well. That you would allow her feet to heal. The antibiotics would do what they're supposed to do and that you'd reach down and touch her. She's been a faithful saint in this church for decades and we just thank you for her, but this is a time of need for her. So we ask that you would touch her body and that you would heal her. And whether it be the storms in L.A. or in uh, Texas or in the mid Midwest, places that aren't used to such cold weather, Father, we ask that your hand would be upon them, that help would be sent, whether it's from the Red Cross or what other appropriate agencies, that power would get restored, water would be restored, and we just thank you for the son of the Forbes family that was uh, preserved and protected and all went well for them. So we thank you for that. Father, there are many concerns, whether it be uh, Jude Velkamp or you have the, the twins that Paul mentioned in Michigan or the baby that was born breech. There are many concerns that we have here, and Father, you are intimately aware of each of them. We ask that you would heal if healing is needed, that you would comfort if comfort is needed. Father, we lay these things before your throne of grace knowing that this many, this many prayer requests is not confusing to you. You've got these very clearly in mind, and you are for some reason pleased when your pe people pray and ask and beseech you for things. So if we are grateful that you have provided us with an avenue that we know you hear our prayers, and you love to hear our prayers, and we thank you for that. So as we preach your word, may it go out with power and clarity May it reveal things that beforehand have not been known to us, but that would somehow prick our conscience, or somehow it would expand our knowledge of the wondrous word, of uh, the richness of your word. 
And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you'd open up your Bibles, we're going to be continuing on. Uh, we're doing a study on the life of Paul, and we're up to Acts chapter 13. And in order to do an adequate study of the life of Paul, you sometimes we have to refer back, and we kind of flip to page uh, to the first chapter of Acts, and then we go further on. But we're actually going to be having our message today on Acts chapter 13. And this, the title of the message today, and you'll see the outline in the back of your bulletin, the title is The Strategy of the Spirit. And it is something that churches wrestle with on a very regular basis, whether it be this church or other churches, is how does a person determine the leading of the Holy Spirit? How does it you determine what the will of the Holy Spirit is or what, what that's going to look like guiding us? You say, well, you need to pray about that. That is such a common thing in, in religious circles. Well, we need to pray about that. And I go, okay, but how can you tell if you should do a, B, or C. And sometimes that can be really tough, and sometimes it's very, very clear. But clearly the strategy of the Holy Spirit is very front and center in the Acts chapter 13 passage, and we're going to look at that in just a little bit. But to kind of go back, and it's necessary to go back a little bit to give an idea of where we've come from, if you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus is getting ready to ascend into heaven, and he's giving some final instructions. And one of the instructions that he's given is, you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses of me. That's Acts chapter 1, verse 8 at the beginning. And lo and behold, in chapter 2, that part of the commission, and it was a three-part commission. One is you will receive power from the Holy Spirit. Beginning of Acts 2, you see that was fulfilled. It was Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came, and we see a bunch of things happen, but that's not the focal point of our message today. The second part of that three-part commission was that you will be witnesses in Jerusalem, then Judea, and to the, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. The uttermost parts of the earth is the third part of the commission. We saw when we uh, did the message on the, the stoning of Stephen, that was the beginning of persecution of the church, and it says they went out from, Judea, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and that was the fulfillment of the second part of the commission. Today is the fulfillment of the third part of that particular commission given by Jesus just before he ascended into heaven. Now when you talk about, and we will be in the weeks to come, when you talk about the missionary journeys of Paul, it can sound like he did a whole lot of traveling on those, because that's what journey means, you're going on a journey. Well, clearly in the first missionary journey, which Acts 13 kicks off, it is a journey. And I was admonished so clearly the other day that something stick in your head, turn this on. And Ed. This isn't exactly the best map, but you're going to see where we're talking about is right there. That's where Antioch is. I'm going to move it a little bit up into Turkey. Right there is Tarsus. That's where Paul was born and raised. He was there for probably, they say, anywhere from 10 to 12 years after his Damascus Road experience. He was, he went up to Tarsus, and we don't hear anything about him at all. And it's believed right up in there in this Tarsus area, right there, that he was whipped by the Jews. 
He was stoned by the Jews. He was thrown out of the synagogue by the Jews. And it's believed that he was up there when Barnabas went to find him. And that was our sermon last week or the week before. The week before, where the church started in Antioch. And as I just said, Antioch is right there. That's where it's at. And if you go down, this is where Jerusalem is. So you have the commission where you go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, they went way on up to Antioch. The first church is started in Antioch. That's where the Christians were first called Christians in Antioch. And by the way, if somebody says that they are a Christian, that means by definition, they are a follower of Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. And we're going to have a little story here about a guy by the name of Bar-Jesus in our uh, Acts 13 passage. That name means something as well. So even today, when you have people throw out, they say, well, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Well, yeah, I'm a Christian. Everybody says they're a Christian. But by definition, that means you're a follower of Jesus Christ. So I said there was three missionary journeys. Journey means they go around a lot. Well, they do. In this one, they do. So you're going to see a little bit later... Well, I did that. I did that. I didn't want to do that either. So we're going to go back. Yeah. Here's Jerusalem. The people spread out to Judea, Samaria. They went all the way up here even to Antioch. The first church is in Antioch. Tarsus is where Paul was for about 10 years. Barnabas went and got Paul from Tarsus, took him down here to Antioch. And that is where our story starts today, is there in Antioch, the church is growing, it's doing well, and we see in Acts chapter 13, verse 1, it reads, In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, both one, Simeon, called Niger, two, Lucius of Cyrene, three, Menaean, who has been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, that's four, and Saul, that makes five. Verse two, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Sounds like pretty straightforward. There's a lot here. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Okay, what's a prophet? What is a teacher? Well, first of all, a prophet is one who is able to speak an inspired word from God for the edification and the direction of the community or the audience, say this church. So they can say a word of edification, which means you, um, it's for the improvement of you morally or spiritually. That's what edification means. But they're speaking a word of encouragement or a word of direction inspired from God. Now, in my humble opinion, this is where the Christian community gets fouled up with the word prophet. Does prophet mean foretelling or forthtelling? I believe what I am doing right now is forthtelling. You're explaining God's word. But there are clearly many, many times in Scripture where it's foretelling. I'll give you an example of one just recently. Go back one page, and you can see in 
Acts chapter 11, verse 27. This is foretelling. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. It is foretelling. It is predicting. It is prognosticating. It is saying, in the future, something will happen. That isn't always the usage of the word prophet because sometimes it can be for the edification. If you were to have someone, and customarily it's someone who is highly respected in a group, they're well-known, they're well-involved, and they step up and they go, you know, I think Pastor so-and-so who is candidating for us, I think he's the right person for this church because. And I think we, could, we should vote to elect that person. And people go, yeah, that, that makes good sense. Yeah, I respect them. They're knowledgeable. They have the best interests of this body at heart. And they are forth-telling. They're giving a word of edification or of encouragement or something like that. And people go, yeah, yeah, that, that sounds good. Okay, that is a, a usage of the word prophet. Teacher is much simpler. Teachers have the ability to instruct believers in the faith. So, in the, the preparation that I did for this message today, there are people who are a lot smarter than me, and they write books, and they tell you all this stuff. They claim, I haven't been able to see it in black and white, but they claim the first three that were in this uh, Acts 13 passage were prophets, and the, the last two were teachers. I'm not going to die on that hill, but we do know there were prophets and teachers. So, if you look at the first one, Barnabas, He's already been introduced to us. We first saw him in Acts chapter 4 where he sold a piece of property. He laid the proceeds at the feet of the apostles. He's also known as a son of encouragement. He was the one that was sent by the Jerusalem church. If you remember, Stephen is stoned in Jerusalem. Then the church begins to be persecuted and they start to flee north. And some went all the way to Antioch. Well, Antioch is the first church. It is a Gentile church, predominantly. And they need help. They, being Antioch, needs help. So word comes down to Jerusalem and said, hey, there's a church that's established up there, and they need some help. So they sent Barnabas up there to help. Barnabas began working in the church at Antioch, and we would say he became, there was too many, too many believers too much to do, and he needed some help, so he went from Antioch over to Tarshish, and it says he searched thoroughly. Scripture doesn't say that, but if you go to those really fancy German or Greek books that I have, it says in there that that word means he searched for Saul because he couldn't find him. Found him eventually, took him back to Antioch. They began waiting on the church. And we see here the third member, or rather I should say the second, is Simon, called Niger. Now there's a little bit of background on this old boy. Niger is Latin for black. That's what it is. So, Simon, called Niger, we get the word Nigeria from the word Niger. So, inquiring minds like to know. I says, well, we're not, you don't want that one. 
Where's Nigeria? Well, Nigeria's way over there. That's Nigeria. So we're talking about all the way up here is where Antioch is. So it's a substantial distance away. I'm not saying he's from Nigeria. I'm saying Niger, Nigeria is derived from the word Niger. Some say, some, I'm not going to die on this hill either. Right there's Cyprus, where we're going to be talking about a little bit later. Some scholars think that this Simon is Simon from Cyrene, or from Cyprus, who was the one that was compelled to carry the cross of Jesus when Jesus was going to be crucified and he fell from the weight of the cross and the Romans grabbed this Simon and said, basically, carry his cross. Some say that, did it again, that this Simon was from Cyprus, even though he was Simon of Niger. Gives you a little bit of an idea of what some of the, the scholars are coming from on that. But nevertheless, the third one's much simpler, Lucius of Cyrene again, Menaean, who was brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. There's a, there's a history behind this. The Herod that is talked about here, that I just said Herod the Tetrarch, is not the one that we talked about in just the last chapter. Because that particular Herod was claimed, the people were saying it's the voice of a god. And that Herod did not decline that acclamation, and he was struck down dead by God. So that's not the Herod, because that guy was, that guy died at the end of chapter 12. This particular Herod that we're talking here is the same Herod that the Lord suffered from, the one that the Lord appeared before, and it will be the same Herod that Paul will appear before way, way later. Okay? That's the Herod that we're talking about. What is interesting with this Menaean Herod was, Herod, Menaean and Herod had a relationship. Menaean was the Herod's fo a foster brother. This is all to say that Menaean had contacts with royalty. Menaean would be considered a nobleman. He had contacts, and it says here, uh, worship Herod the Tetrarch. A Tetrarch is a guy who is a joint ruler. It's if you have a large, let's just take Washington State, just because we all know what that looks like on a map, and you divided it into, into parcels, let's say four or five or six pieces, a tetrarch would be governor over one of those pieces. So you could have four, five, or six tetrarchs of, a, of an area, and that is what Herod was. He owned, control, had control of a particular area. Now we go on. Last one is Saul. We know him best. But notice he is only introduced basically as a teacher. Not as an apostle. Not even as a prophet. He's just a teacher. So here's the collection of people that we have. And this is the part that I kind of want to marry. Is I started out by saying how do we know the will or the guidance or the direction of the Holy Spirit. How, how do we know that? 
Well, here's one thing that I have always found is very important, is be busy in the Lord's work. Just get after it. Whatever you have a heart to do, get after it. And don't just sit around and say, well, the Lord hasn't revealed to me yet what I should be doing. So I'll just sit here and I'll wait. And the, the, little, the little cute statement goes, you know, it is much easier to change direction of a, of a ship that's moving and a car that's moving. It's really hard to change the direct, direction of a parked car. So you're just waiting to be told what the Lord should have you do. That's like a parked car. Now you say, well, God can do anything. Yeah, I know that. I know that, but it's much easier to move a car that's moving. So I go, get after the Lord's business, do what you believe you're wired to do, and I always say, do you think the Lord has the power to change your direction? Absolutely. So get on with it and do what your, your heart desires, and if the Lord wants you to move, he'll make that apparent, either by closing doors or opening doors. So what they're doing here is they are busy about the Lord's work. Because in verse 2 it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy, Holy Spirit said. So they're after it. They're doing what they love to do, and they're fulfilling that. Now I want to stop at this point, and I want to go over the outline in the back of your bulletin. There's a, the, the top half of it, I think this would be appropriate time to fill some of that in. It says, What are the marks of a healthy church? Well, the first one is it's based on sound teaching. It's based on sound teaching. And if you ever want to foul up a church, one way to foul up a church is to have somebody behind this pulpit that gives wrong information. Certainly that is. But it's far more effective for Satan to go and foul up the seminary. Go foul up the seminary, and then you can have dozens of, of people in the class, and you get... You get that teaching wrong, and then all those people go out into churches, hypothetically, and they can make that teaching wrong. Satan is, we can all agree, he, ha he has lo lost the battle. His destination is a lake of fire. We all know that he is, he is already defeated, but that doesn't mean he's stupid. So go to the seminaries, and go to the primary movers and shakers, and the primary mover and shaker is Sergius Paulus on Cyprus. And we're going to see that a little bit later. If you can control a governor or a president or the movers and shakers in the nation, all that filters down to the people. And that's a big reason we pray for the leadership over us so that they can be protected. Because that's what Satan wants to do is get a grip on the leadership and it all filters through the rest of the church or the nation. So let's... Let's look at the second one. What uh, is the mark of a healthy church? It's really born again. This isn't a country club. It's not a camel's club. It's not just a society where we can just get together. It is a group of hopefully born again people. The third one is there's an attitude of love. And the fourth one is it is spirit controlled. That is some, of, some just a small list of the marks of a healthy church. So we're going to go on now. So how did the Holy Spirit speak, or how does the Holy Spirit speak? Well, I, I see it as primarily two ways. Primarily two ways is you can have the Holy Spirit speak through a person who is recognized to have wisdom and concern, and we talked about that a little bit earlier, is a person just, it just rises to the surface and people listen to what that person has to say. 
that is one way that the Holy Spirit can speak, and another way, and it can be, it can be absolutely a, a, a mixing of these two, but another way is when there is pretty much a universal conviction on the part of the audience that is affected, and they go, we strongly believe that we should do A, B, and C. The Holy Spirit can work that way, and has worked that way where there is just kind of a universal conviction that this is the right path to take, and then the church moves ahead. Now, I've, I've given you, and I'm not, don't get scared and walk out. I'm not going to do a whole sermon on this, but I am just going to review. I've, I've told you how to determine God's will. There are, there are very distinct steps on how to determine God's will. One is to read scripture, pray specifically, very specifically. What exactly are you praying for? The third one is to seek godly counsel. The fourth one is to look for confirming circumstances. And the last one is, if none of those are clear, then we are told to wait. And for Americans, that's probably the hardest one, is you just wait. Pray specifically. Read scripture, look for confirming circumstances, and seek godly counsel. That is how you can determine God's will. Certainly there can be nuances to those, but that's just the big picture. Okay, told you I wasn't going to belabor that a long time. So, we see in this, in this scriptures where the uh, church there is fasting, and this is not necessarily because they were overweight. They were there because they were very concerned about something, and in the Bible, fasting is always the mark of deep spiritual concern. And fasting indicates that the church was in the mood of expectancy and intense devotion. It was openness to the Lord's leading. And they indeed did get the Lord's leading. But whenever you see fasting in Scripture, it was always an in, it's an intense time of devotion and seeking the Lord's leading. Going to the remainder of the outline, the church at Antioch, it was in a mood of expectancy and openness to the Lord's leading. It was in a mood of expectancy and openness to the Lord's leading. And, and B is fasting and worship suggest a time of intense devotion to God's leading. And finally, the last one is our worship and service must be unto the Lord. That's who we are here for. And our worship and our service needs to be unto the, unto the Lord. So there's a blending of two factors when you have the, the leading of the Holy Spirit. Is you have, have the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit, however you want to express that, or you, and you have the responsibility of man. And oftentimes, for, for whatever reason, in God's wisdom, we see those kind of merge. Is you have the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God intersect. I'll give you an example of that. Is in the passage, it, the Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. So, okay, that occurred. But then when you go on, they had John Mark go with them. We don't, have, we don't read anything about John, the Holy Spirit saying, take John Mark with you. We don't have the Holy Spirit saying anything about go to Cyrene, to the island of Cyrene, and go over here. We don't have any of that. 
we don't have anything about the Holy Spirit saying, if you go to Patmos, you're going to be uh, intersecting with Sergius Paulus, the governor, and you're going to be witnessing to him. We don't have any of that. All it says is, set them apart for my work, and they did man's responsibility. Again, get after the Lord's work. What is your natural wiring? And he says, well, Barnabas, well, I got lots of people in, in Crete or Cyprus that I'm, I'm familiar with. Why don't we go over there? I got a lot of contacts. Saying, well, that sounds good, so away they go. Does God have the power to derail that if he wanted to? Absolutely he could have. But it made good sense to go do that. But initially, the Holy Spirit just set them apart. And then kind of like, go and do whatever it is you're going to do. So they, they went to the island of Cyprus. And they immediately went into the synagogue. And why would that be? Why would they go to the synagogue? Well, you read in Romans chapter 1, Paul states, I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first to the Jew, and then for the Gentile. And that pattern was always embraced. That was a pattern you see from time to time to time is, is Saul or Paul. It's going to soon be Paul. He would go to the Jews first. If they rejected the gospel, then he would go over to the Gentiles. We saw that over and over again. So, why did they take John Mark with them? It's just inquiring minds like to know. It was at the end of verse... Five, John was with them as their helper. We first read about John or John Mark in chapter 12, verse 25. That is, the, it was his mom where they were, the church was praying and then Peter was released from prison. He came and remember he's, not, he's knocking on the door and Rhoda came and, and says, he's there, shuts the door. He's there and that was John Mark's mom. It is believed there are several reasons why John Mark went along. One is his mother was rich. She had a lot of money. And that's just a practicality in ministry. The second one is people who are a lot smarter than me say that John Mark and Barnabas were cousins. Okay, So they say that there's a relational aspect to it. John Mark is the same one who later wrote the Gospel of Mark. Some, and I like, I like the authors who try to make it very practical, some authors would say that John Mark was a bit spoiled. He, he had been given, he had a life of ease. He'd had an association with money that made life relatively easy for him. In fact, and I'm not going to die on this hill, but I do like telling you stuff that could possibly uh, broaden your horizons, or I call it color the picture, so it makes it a little clearer. Some have said there's a possibility that John Mark was the rich young ruler that Jesus met in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where he had riches. And Jesus says, yes, but you lack one thing, sell all that you have and follow me. And he went away sad because he had a lot of wealth. Some think this is the same guy. 
and then they also add, but if he is the same guy, he did come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, and here we are. He's in service to the Lord. So you can take that with a grain of salt. Some have said that. I'm not sure I embrace it, but I think it's, it's good to know that that is out there. All right, we move on. Okay. Uh, so when you have human responsibility and divine uh, divine sovereignty, and they intersect, we're going to see that the Holy Spirit said, set them apart, and then away the guys went. Barnabas and Saul, away they went. So now, we're going to look at, look at one of the maps, and it kind of tells us some information. They started at Antioch, they went to Seleucia. They went from Seleucia, and they went over to this portion of Cyprus, right there. Uh, it has a name that escaped me right now, but that really doesn't matter. We can... Salamis, that's what it's called. The distance, the distance from Seleucia to Salamis is about 90 miles. The distance from Salamis, they went along this coastline over to this part of Cyprus right over here is about 60 miles. And it is believed they went to the towns all along the seacoast of the island of Cyprus. Did the Holy Spirit tell them to do that? No. Just, it just seems like a natural extension of the spreading of the gospel. So that's what they did. I use the expression, be obedient to what you know. If the Lord wants to change your direction, he's most capable of doing that. That should not be a problem at all. We're going to be reading in Acts chapter 13, starting at verse 6. It says, they traveled through the whole island until they came to Patmos. There they met a Jewish sorcerer. Some would call him a magician. Some would call him a court wizard, whichever you want to use. But it says here in my translation, Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus, who was an attendant of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of the Lord, or the word of God. When Elimaeus, the sorcerer, for that is what his name means, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul from the faith, then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elimaeus and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, and will you never stop perverting the right way of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you, and you are going to be blind, and for a time you will be unable to see the light of the sun. And doesn't that sound like a reference to when uh, Saul was converted on the Damascus Road, and he too was blind for a time? But let's go back to verse 6. If they met a Jewish sorcerer named Bar-Jesus, Bar, in the Hebrew culture, Bar meant son of. So he was a son of Jesus in Hebrew culture. That meant you were a follower of Jesus, just like Christian means you're a follower of Christ. In here, he was, he was no more a follower of Christ than nothing. He perverted the way. He tried to make the way unclear. That is what he did, and when it says that he was with a guy by the name of Sergius Paulus, a proconsul, that's a governor. That's another name for governor. So it's interesting, when I, were, when I 
when I read this, and it says, you are a child of the devil, and, and you, are, you never stop perverting the right way of the Lord, meaning he tried to make the simple message of the gospel convoluted and difficult, and just was always putting a twist on it. I'm sorry, you maybe can't, can't relate to this, and, and I understand that, but immediately in my mind, it was what it was like testifying in court for 25 years, is you give a simple explanation of what happened, and the job of the defense attorney is to make it as convoluted and complicated and nonsensical as you possibly can. And sometimes you just go, "How? Oh, they're really good at it. I mean, how can you make something so simple and straightforward be so convoluted and difficult to understand? That is exactly where my mind went when I read this, is the simple message of the gospel this guy would, would twist it and turn it, but he had a vested interest for this governor not to accept Christ. He had a real deal going here, and it was making him a lot of money. He was like an advisor to this governor. He, was, he had what would be called a uh, respectable position because he was high up in government. He was making a lot of money, by doing what he, what he was doing, because he was giving advice to one of the top people on the island. And as I said earlier, Satan is smart. He knows if he controls the right people, he controls the nation. If he controls Sergius Paulus, he controls the whole island. So it goes on. At the end, the last, let's take the last paragraph. It says, immediately mist and darkness came over him and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand and when the proconsul saw what had happened he believed for he was amazed at the teachings about the Lord. And I'll end with this. No, that either. Okay, we're done. I'll end with this. Is when I used to have read this that's what I Jenny put on there. This is, uh, you can tell I kind of like maps. Okay, it kind of tells you where you're going to get your bearings. There's Antioch Salamis, they went all along the coastline here, and they, they stopped at the various cities. They went to Paphos right here, and then we see this is his journey. I told you earlier that the, there's a first, the second, and the third missionary journey. Well, the first journey is indeed a journey. He goes to all these different cities, and we're going to get into that later on. But you're going to see his second journey goes all the way to Ephesus, and he spends most uh, that was his third one. Ephesus is, is out, of, or Corinth is out over here. So those were his other journeys. We're not going to get into that now. <clears throat> but when I read this, this particular passage in the past, I went, wow, the governor believed Paul because he was impressed that he could have his servant go blind. Right? No. The scriptures does not say that. It says when the proconsul saw what had happened, his, this guy, Bar-Jesus, went blind, he believed for he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. That is what he was impressed about, was the teachings of the Lord. And I had to step back and I kind of went, are we so used to the gospel message that, frankly, we're, we're really not that impressed with it anymore. We know it's there. We know we're saved. We're, no, you, we, we're bound for heaven. We believe that Jesus Christ rose from the, de the dead. But, frankly, we're not that impressed with it anymore. And the words in the scripture are, he was amazed 
at the teaching about the Lord. And I go, have we lost our edge? Where we read this passage, you go, that's really nice. Yeah, that, that, you know, that was a really nice sermon, Pastor. You know, that was really good, but we're not really all that impressed by God anymore because he's just a real familiar friend. In fact, we've got to the point, we've been a Christian for so long, there is an expectation on our part that, you know what, God, you need to save us because your scripture said so, and you need to do all this stuff for us instead of we have a heart that looks out of immense gratitude that we just still can't believe that he would do that for us because he didn't have to. There's an immense amount of gratitude and reflection and going, would I have ever done that? No. Would I tarry and give America the grace that we are currently experiencing knowing that I, if, if God has been thrown out of the schools, he's been thrown out of as many public areas as you possibly can. And you go, God, you need to do this. You're a merciful God. You know, you said that you are, and you go, are you amazed that God would continue to, to bestow his grace and his mercy on us as a people, knowing what's going on? And you look at this governor, and he was amazed about the teachings of the Lord. And I think it is good for us to step back and go, what is our attitude towards the teachings of the Lord? Are we continually impressed like, wow, that is a story like no other story. It's just a question. It was brought to the governor, and he was converted not by the miracle, but because of the teachings of the Lord. And I think we need to be equally impressed by what God has done for us. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for your word and for how applicable it is to us even today. And as we go for another week, and it's probably busy for many of us, I ask that you would go with us and that the light that people see coming from us would be the light of Jesus Christ. And they go, indeed, something is different about that man or woman, that boy or girl. Something's different about them. And I want what they have. And non-believers in this community would be impressed and amazed by the teachings about the Lord. And that we would be a light for you in that regard. In Christ's name, amen. Please stand. Love.